Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in the satsang we'll continue our seemingly endless series of presentations deriving from the words, actions and teachings of Jesus as illustrated in the Gospel of Luke. And um, we are in a very difficult paragraph. This I am aware of the fact that we have been dragging and dragging this paragraph, this chapter, because it brings up a lot of heavy and uh, powerful issues, which people usually don't like to hear about. Because Jesus is giving some basic theory about eliminating bad spirits, exorcism, demonic influences, and things like that. And uh, the distance between today and those teachings is so huge that people don't even want to hear about these dark influences. And Jesus talks all day long about it, and he's dwelling into it, and he's dealing with it all the time. And if you remember, he was talking about the fact that people accused him, uh, that was, that is really the paradox, people accused him that he was uh, sorting out, they saw him healing a demonic problem, the famous story of the man who was mute, a man who could not speak and who according to Jesus was possessed. And Jesus solves that problem, like performs a miracle, even if it's a small miracle, but it's still something incomprehensible. And the other people have the goal of uh, implying that Jesus was doing that by the power of other demons, that he was using just demons to chase out other demons. And in this particular respect, Jesus is, of course, bringing some uh, rebuttal. He is rebuking them, he says. And it's very funny that, uh, funny in a sad way, that people would prefer to believe any shit whatsoever, even when this is making no sense and it goes against the common sense. Jesus is giving them a rebuttal which is uh, common sense, it's according to a Socratic way of thinking, like he is bringing them A plus B equals C, and then this and that. And uh, still, people are ready to believe the worst. It's so much easier to believe the bad things than to believe the good things. If you saw Jesus healing somebody, then why would you want to believe that Jesus did that? by a demonic power. Because of course, if you saw Jesus doing that and you said, this man is God, is one with God, this man is divine, and he's with us, and I can talk to him, and I can ask him, what shall I do? And he can advise me, and all that, then it's like I have to consecrate my soul. I have to dedicate my soul. I have to take a decision today. If I saw Jesus doing this, then maybe I should fall on my knees and say, Jesus, I have been erring. I have been going in the darkness all my life. Now I met you and now I saw the light through what you've done. And so on. guide me. My life has to... 
You know, people cannot do that so easily. That's a very huge anti-entropic effort to do that. And then people say, before that, let me take a chance. Uh, maybe he did it with the demons. Because if he did it with the demons, then I don't have to change my life. I don't have to make a revolution in my life. It's easier if he did it with the demons. I was uh, asking a lawyer, and I must admit it was a lazy lawyer because I've seen gophers, hyperactive achievers in the lawyer thing, and I was asking a lawyer for a friendly service to sort out some legal things which were related to my stay when I stayed in India many years ago in those years. And the lawyer, the first thing which the lawyer said was, but maybe that person is dead. I said, no, I have no proof, but that person is most probably not dead. But how do you know she is not dead? But is there a way, like everything she asked is because she didn't want to do the work. If the person was dead, then suddenly it was unnecessary to do the work. You know, believe me, that lawyer, she insisted, I wouldn't say psychopathically, she, insi she insisted only like an obsessive person would insist that how can I demonstrate to her that the person from whom she had to go and take an affidavit was first of all not at all dead. And I said, look, buy the ticket, go to India, do the fucking work and stop taking constantly. She asked, what if that person is dead? I said, consider that person is not dead. It's the same here. For the public seeing Jesus doing this, it's more easy to say, this is a David Copperfield trick. He had arranged it with that guy. They cheated. He is doing it with the demons. Anything is easier than saying Jesus was doing it with God, and he is with God, and you have to listen to what he says and do what he says. That's the real difficult thing. And that's why people are trying to evade. And Jesus, for those of you who followed, those satsangs will be up on internet if they are not up there already on our YouTube channel. Um, Jesus is first of all giving them a common sense demonstration. He says, people, you are going so crazy trying to not see the truth. It's like you really, really want it not to be true. You really wish that I was not with God. Anything would be preferable for you than the fact that I was right. And it was in your face, you know. And then uh, Jesus is giving them a common sense demonstration, which I'm not going to repeat. But he is going like through elementary logics by saying, you know, the same story. But which is saying uh, a house divided against itself will fall and all those very common sense, very intelligent things. And Jesus is saying a thing which was materialized later by René Guénon, the great French metaphysician of the 20th century, in a saying which I mentioned. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are saved. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes him the armor in which the man trusted and divides upon the spoils. Like, the worst thing according to Jesus 
is not to be prepared. Like you live in the jungle. And especially today I see this, especially in the countries that lost their Manipura, because life is too easy. And then people simply don't want to believe that they live in a war zone. According to a man like Jesus, to a teaching like Jesus, you, dear friends, even though when you do yoga with Agama here in the 21st century, everybody in the history of this planet has lived in a twilight zone, in a war zone, in the crossfire between two lands and two camps, the good guys, which are supposed to be the angels and the saints of God, and the bad guys, which are supposed to be the demons and the devils, because demons and devils does not mean the same thing, they are fighting for your soul. The demons hope that you will drink so much booze until you'll kill everybody around you and defile yourself and you will go to hell. And the angels hope that you will become a vegetarian and uh, practice non-violence. And when you end your life, you will go to Shambhala or to some other loka of light, Hiranya loka, or something like this. Of course, I'm simplifying it, and I'm making it ironical on purpose to make you smile, to take it with a pinch of salt, but still, the human history, especially in Christianity, is described as a war. Your soul is between two choices, to go up or to go down. And apparently there is no mid-choice. People say, what if I choose for a hundred years to just stay in the middle? Jesus considers that there is no middle, as I said last time in the end of it. And therefore he is simply asking you, forget about the middle thing. The middle is an illusion, doesn't exist. You have to choose. It's black or white. Choose. This is very militant. It's very like, are you with the Communist Party or are you against the Communist Party? You know, you are a partisan or not a partisan. There is no middle position in this. And the human history is full of evaluations if there is indeed a middle position or if that middle position is an illusion. According to Jesus, that middle position does not exist. So Jesus says, if you guard yourself strongly, you cannot be overpowered. And therefore the darkness shall have no strength on you. But if you are overpowered, then you are going to be rolled over and abused by the forces of darkness. He is presenting everything like a battle. It's a battle. You could be dramatic and say it's a battle for your soul. But even that is not expressing exactly, because it's a form of egocentrism. Oh, my soul is so important that even the demons and the angels are fighting for it. Uh, sure, does that make you feel good? Does that make you that feel that you are important? Even the last forgotten peasant who lived in the 16th century France was still part of this. The demons and the angels may have fought for his soul, and you don't even know his name. That person was a Mr. Nobody. So it doesn't make you be very important just because you are coveted both by the angels and by the demons. And there is a whole theological and metaphysical attempt to describe why things are so and so on. 
Of course, people who are new age-ish and starting with the hippies, 1960s yoga, they very seldom go into such a serious attitude of conflict. No? Because if the hippies would have had an attitude of conflict, we'd have said, we have learned from Swami Shivananda to do yoga, and we have learned from some demonized babas to smoke marijuana. Doing yoga is what makes the angels happy, and smoking marijuana is what makes the demons happy. Anybody cares? The marijuana came in the 60s, and today it's almost legalized in almost all the countries. It has become one of the major forms of plague of the modern world, by which people destroy themselves, and they give themselves to what they don't even suspect that is there. And René Guénon, a great intellectual, a mathematician who became one of the greatest esotericists of Western Europe, he said it very clearly. He said the biggest, the supreme delusion of the demonic forces is to hide and to make people believe that they, the demonic forces, don't even exist. And that it was a superstition coming from the medieval times. And there is nobody bitter out there who wants your throat. The bad news is that there is. We live both in a physical jungle here in Kopangan, and we live in a virtual jungle in the subtle universes. The subtle universes are filled up with entities out of which 50% of them are good to you, and 50% of them are not good to you. And it's exactly like if you would be traveling to a challenging country, the typical example used to be India. And anybody who has seriously traveled to India, not in a five-star resort with cars from the airport, like not isolated, traveling in the real India, it knows that once you turn your back, your money, your passport, and your backpack will disappear in 30 seconds. So in India, when you really travel... You won't constantly have to be on your toes because you are in a jungle. And some of the Indian people are very nice Anahata Chakra, typical old-fashioned Indians. And some of the Indian people are Manipura Chakra rascals who are just trying to steal your luggage, steal your money, steal whatever they can from you, and more if they can. And thus, uh, in a certain way, it's like you have to be prepared all the time. And Jesus supports this psychology. You have to live your life as you are on a battlefield. And you are being disputed by the two parts. And in conclusion <coughs> of this, Jesus is saying a sentence. This sentence alone, I could speak the whole evening about it. I'll probably not speak the whole evening about it. But it's the kind of statement which I mentioned in the end of last week and which simply draws the line. And concluding all this theory about demonic influences and so on, Jesus then says it very clearly. Oh no, let's cut the bullshit. Things are like this. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. He who is not with me is against me. 
I remember that in the third episode of the Star Wars, the modern series of the Star Wars, with the young Darth Vader becoming a dark uh, soul and so on, he is, in the end, the final scene is that he is fighting and arguing, he is turning against his own guru, against his own teacher, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he's finding it's about a lot of personal and egoistic and emotional things, and he's saying, and the, the guy says, I'm not doing this, I know, you are doing something wrong. And then the black guy says, if you are not with me, then you are against me. And the supposed spirit of light, who is Obi-Wan Kenobi, the good Jedi master, who is, of course, not expressing the wisdom of Jesus, because it's coming from a Hollywood movie made in the 21st century, so he has to be politically correct. No balls, no diamond, no sharpness. He's giving him, a, he, he goes against it. Like, the dark guy gives a reply like Jesus, and the good guy says, only a Sith, like a dark uh, warrior, not a non-Jedi, only a non-Jedi would deal in such absolute, you know, like such an ugly statement. But the funny thing is that the dark one was repeating the statement of Jesus. And uh, the good guy was, this is unfortunately the manipulation, which is in the good days. Like, uh, you know, you young viewers of uh, the Star Wars, you should not think who is not with the good guys is against of the black guys. Only Darth Vader was thinking like this, and that is a fanatic thinking. That is a fundamentalistic thinking. That's how the fundamentalistic Christians are thinking. That's how the fundamentalistic Muslims are thinking. That's how the fundamentalistic Jews are thinking. That's how the fundamentalistic whoever are thinking. And the civilized modern people say, oh, come on, you cannot say that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Jesus said it, and it's still true. Jesus was not ashamed, you see. This is where you can think, was this man a monster of ego? Was he the most megalomanic person ever to have lived on earth? Because he said, I am God, and if you don't believe me, you go to hell. That's basically what he said. If you don't believe me, you are going to cry. I am God... And if you cannot see that, you are against me and tough luck. See you in a million years after you've gone through hell and cried a lot. And suffered, maybe suffering will make you open your eyes and see who I really am. No? It's like very tough, very uncompromising. If Jesus is right, which of course Ramakrishna and Yogananda and all the big yogis would tell you he is right. You know, like have no doubt he is right. The yogis could see that Jesus was Jesus and that he was right. And then, if Jesus is right, this should give you shudders and goosebumps. And it should make you think, what have I done with my life until today? How did I live my life? Am I responsible? Have I given myself truly to God? People say, come on, Swamiji, you always speak like a fanatic. Everybody should do yoga, 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 yoga. There are people who live in the society, who are workers in the society. There are people who are family men, family women, householders, and they still have a very spiritual commitment and a very religious life. 
So I'm not talking only about yogis. I'm talking about something which is clear in the soul of each and every person. That people know, whatever I do, just having a normal job in the society, having 12 children and raising a family and whatever, I am on this side. I live on this side. I have taken sides. Jesus says it at least 10 times during his speeches and teachings. I want to separate the wheat from the weeds. Like he says, they are human beings, which to me, momentarily, they are weeds. They live a useless life on the face of this planet. They think they are very important and very wonderful. But according to me, they are just wasting oxygen on this planet. And I want the wheat, and I don't want the wheat. He's very divisive. We had people who said, Swamiji, sometimes you yourself, when you speak about the troubles, which are gamma, you are very divisive. You said those people are wrong, those people are right. Can't we be hugging everybody, the new age style, be friendly and inclusive? And no, we cannot. Because Jesus is not. Jesus is not inclusive. Jesus splits the society in two. Those who are with me and who will come to the kingdom of heaven and those who are not with me and who will have to go and cry a little bit until they wake up from their nightmare. And therefore, um, Jesus is extremely, is drawing a line very clearly. And he says it doesn't matter what you do. Nobody says that you should have the practice of Milarepa. Because Milarepa, he had a practice because he had a huge grace upon him. Everybody who studied with me last week, Kashmiri Shaivis, knows now. Practice, aspiration, commitments, all these things, all these values, they are coming because of grace. When grace has fallen upon you, some amount of grace at least, then you feel electrified and you feel motivated and you feel that you can do and that you want to do and things are there. No? And therefore, it's not about this that some people are practicing a lot and some people are not. Wherever you are in life, remember Jesus is speaking to everybody. Jesus is speaking to the crowds. Most of the crowds are not made of yogis. They are made of citizens who live in a village in that civilization. But even those people, Jesus says, in their heart of their hearts, they have to decide if they are with me or against me. It's us. Oh, but could we not postpone that decision? No. It means you are wishy-washy. It means your consciousness is not clear. And therefore, that's not a good. You fall on the side of those who don't. Like... Those who are not with me are against me. He who does not gather with me, what to gather? Merit. People gather merit. Seraphim of Sarov said that Christians are gathering Holy Spirit by prayer and good deeds. So those who don't gather with me scatters. People say, yeah, but I gather with someone else. Even then, Jesus says, it's me under another name. Because then the sectarian people in Christianity say, Aha! So you see, it's not possible for the Buddhists 
or for the Hindus to have ever reached salvation because they don't they are not with Jesus. They don't gather with Jesus, but they do. Because the cosmic principles of Chit, Sat Chitananda, pure existence, pure consciousness and pure bliss, Shiva and Shakti, they exist in all the religions, in all the spiritualities, but they are called by different names. And therefore, Jesus doesn't care if you call him by his Hebrew Aramaic name that he is Yeshua or something like this. If you don't know his Hebrew name, he doesn't care a bit. But if Abhinavagupta calls him, you are the Shiva consciousness, Jesus says, high five Abhinavagupta. Yeah, you got it right. Like I'm with you. Abhinavagupta is with Jesus. He gathers with Jesus because Jesus represents a cosmic principle of reality. He calls himself the Son of God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triad, the ultimate triad. So Jesus, when he says, nobody can go to God unless through me. He doesn't mean you have to become Christian. He means in your religion, there is the principle which I represent right now on earth. That principle is the door through which you go into the Supreme Consciousness. He doesn't mean me as a personality, as a limited personality. No, People say, I met so many fanatic Christians in my life who are gathered. If you don't know Jesus, you, don't, you are lost. And you know, all these, especially the more neo-Protestant sects, all these, they are crazy about this kind of stuff. And I'm telling them, but in Tibet, in the 10th century, nobody had ever heard about Jesus. There has not been one Christian person who walked to Tibet for a thousand years. So the Tibetans, if they didn't know about Jesus for 10 centuries, it means that they all went to hell because they didn't know about Jesus. Like, how would God be such a partial cosmic father that he gave to the Jews the physical presence and likeness of Jesus, and the Tibetans didn't hear about Christianity until the 16th century or something like that, until Huao Cabral and another girl called Kaisela, Jesuit missionaries, they walked in Tibet and they said, hey, do you, did you ever hear about Jesus? And What did they do until the 16th century? Were they all going to hell? Obviously not. Obviously, Tibet was actually one of the most spiritual parts of earth. So how do you then put together that if you don't know me, you don't go to God? And the Tibetans did go to God. It means that they were having the same principle, but they were calling it by some Tibetan name. They were understanding the metaphysics. They didn't know, perhaps, that this cosmic principle made itself an avatar and came in the year zero in Palestine and taught it from there to the whole world. And maybe some of them in the 16th century, they said, wow, 16 centuries ago, there was a man like, we are very happy to, you know, we, mm, our ancestors never even heard about this one. The yogis of India, like Ramakrishna and others, when they heard about Jesus, they were very elated. They said, we are happy to know that just because of ignorance, for centuries and centuries we didn't hear about this man. 
But now, when there is newspapers and books and so on, uh, and boat travels and so on, we, through the British Empire, we found out that such a man did live in Palestine 18 centuries ago. Like the yogis were very happy because they said, we are with Jesus. Just we didn't call him Jesus because Jesus comes from Hebrew and Aramaic and it's a word there. We couldn't have used Aramaic words because we don't speak Aramaic. And no, we would call him Isha or Ishvara or some, no, we would call him by a Sanskrit word which would correspond to our things. And we have that and we understand that and we go for that and everything. That's why the statement of Jesus, as much as it sounds extreme, megalomanic, provocative, it actually works. Because Jesus says there has to be a choice. And that choice cannot be negligence. Because the human soul is tamasic. Some people would say, could I in this life not be part of the war between light and darkness? Um, 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 and then there is somebody who really said that either Louise Hay or one of these people who tries to bring explanations from previous lives that everything is something which you did in the previous lives, which is and isn't. I don't go as fanatic as that far from that. And then there was a guy, I'm saying that in some lectures, you know, and I'm blaming it, that there is some guy in the book of Elizabeth H., yoga and something, where Yasudian and Elizabeth H., if I remember, it's slowly coming to me. I haven't used that in a lecture for more than 10 years, I think. No, where the guy says, oh, I discovered in a vision that I did a lot of spiritual practice like Milarepa in a previous life. And therefore, my dharma in this life was to stay quiet and not to do meditation and spiritual practice because I did too much in my previous life and now I had to take a break. That's not true. It can't be true. It will never be true. There does not exist such a dharma. That man got lied to by his own laziness. He was tamasic and lazy, and he was trying to find an elegant excuse for not doing spiritual practice. Haha, <laughs> I did too much spiritual practice in my previous life, and why does it say that you shouldn't do it in this one three times more than what you did in the previous life? Where does that come from? Nowhere. No? But it's like, I want to do nothing. Uh, I'm not with God. Because that would make making too much effort and I'm on a break right now. I'm on a sabbatical in spirituality. You know? So I'm not going to do that. But don't think that I'm with the devil. I don't serve the devil. I'm not a person of darkness. I am somewhere in the middle. Right now I'm taking a sabbatical. It's a break. It doesn't exist. Jesus tells you that there is no stable point in this universe. You flow up or you flow down. There is no stagnation. Everything moves constantly. And if you don't move up, then you can be absolutely sure that you move down, even if you think you don't move at all. Thus, Jesus simply says, make sure that you always make sure that you move up. If you don't feel that you move up, it means most probably that you move down. And therefore, that's not a good choice. I mentioned it in the end of last satsang, 
That was one of the jokes of existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre. And this is a character in one of the Jean-Paul Sartre plays, who is, uh, it's the new French invention of that time, which is the philosophy called humanism. I met so many people when I lived in the West who said, I am a humanistic person. The European Union is a humanistic institution, and so on. Humanism, in the definition of those people, is an invention of the late 19th, early 20th century. And he says, we are not with God, we are not with the devil, we are with man. We are with the human being. That's why it's called humanism. Many theologians have demonstrated crushingly. Humanism is just a form of Satanism, which is not directly Satanism. It's called Luciferianism. Because the devil has different degrees. And when you don't go to the darkest degree, there is one intermediary which cheats people, which is called Luciferianism. And Luciferianism says, I don't need God. I don't need to be afraid of the devil. I'm a human being and human beings create their own future. Human beings create their own fate. We humans, that's what you learn in school and everywhere, in the universities. We humans, we are mastering the forces of nature. We are deciding on the fate of this planet. Yes, uh, stop the global warming, sure, because you are deciding. No, but there were dinosaurs 65 million years ago. It was super hot. Did anybody heat it that time? You know, did anybody did global warming that time? No. The planet is warming and cooling down without asking us if we are present on its face or not. Scientists have demonstrated that the human influence is less than 1% on what's happening. And the influence of the sun is more than 90%. The sun is warming up constantly since 500 years. And therefore, which is more important? The fact that our cows are farting and our cars are producing fumes? Or the fact that the sun is getting hotter, 1%, 2% hotter since 500 years, and it will continue going hotter maybe for another 500 years. And then it will start going colder and so on. And thus, what I'm trying to say here is humanism is the dominant philosophy now. Most of the universities in Europe, most of the secular institutions, most of the governments, they are supposed to be humanistic. I have very bad news for those of you who believe in this abomination. Humanism equal Luciferianism. Humanism is a form of anti-divine philosophy. It's exactly as Jesus said. That's why I say, Swamiji, you are a fanatic. Maybe. If you want to call me a fanatic, maybe that's what I am. But if you want to go by the letter of the things... Jesus says very clearly, you are on the side of God proactively, even if you are a simple person living in a corner of the world, you don't need to be a yogi, you don't need to stand on your head every day, but you have to have your heart there, or if not, you are flowing down. There is no midpoint. There is yin or yang, and nothing is 50% yin and 50% yang, as you can read in the laws of yin and yang. Nothing has perfect balance of yin and yang. It's always a 0.0000001% exceeding on one of the sides. So the seesaw is either like this or like this. It's never hanging in the middle. It's always this way 
or this way. There is no midpoint. So, Jesus says it very clearly. Sooner or later, you have to take a decision in your heart. That decision, again, does not involve that you should stop practicing your job or taking care of your family and uh, starting practicing like Milarepa or like uh, Tsongkhapa. That would be nice, by the way. I would love to see some of you becoming like Shankaracharya and like Milarepa and like Ramakrishna. The chance is very small. Such giants of spirituality, they appear once every 100, 200, 300 years in the history of humanity. And that's why not everybody is of that caliber. But what is happening in your soul, the way you have positioned this seesaw is very important. And Jesus then continues giving more explanations about how the human beings are interacting with these demonic entities. He says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. What a splendid metaphor. An evil spirit goes out of a man. So it is possible for you to eliminate an evil spirit. You want me to tell you how you eliminate an evil spirit? For example, you never smoke tobacco. Again, because the tobacco contains an evil spirit. It's true that some shamans from North America and from Amazon, they were smoking tobacco as a part of some medicine man rituals, but they did it with special consecration. They did it with special intent because they were shamans and they were using it for an action like they wanted to have rain or they wanted to stop too much rain or they wanted this or they wanted that. And please remember that these shamans very often were very demonic persons. Many of these shamans were not saints or angels. They were split forces, a little bit like you read in Carlos Castaneda's Don Juan, that this Don Juan, you never knew if he was a demon or an angel. And of course, never forget that Don Juan did not exist. It was demonstrated scholarly and academically by Ralph Manzer and uh, Richard Alper, and some of the big gurus of the 70s, they made big academic meetings where they demonstrated that Carlos Castaneda was lying and he invented all this yucky thing and all this uh, Don Juan and this. And there has never existed neither such a teaching nor such a shaman. And Carlos Castaneda was getting most of his impressions and stuff from a peyote cactus and other psychedelic substances which he was ingesting. So most of the Don Juan Castaneda literature is a literature which emerges from taking drugs and inventing things and putting them in the mouth of an imaginary character called Don Juan. So uh, you can bring evil spirits out. When you are possessed by alcohol, the alcohol is generally an evil spirit, not a beneficial spirit. When you look at the, as Jesus says, any tree shall be known by its fruits. Which are the fruits of alcohol in your country in the last 50 years? 90% of the fruits of alcohol are shit, 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 death, 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 
death, disease, 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 evil, 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 darkness, darkness, darkness. Dark. Ah, that you can say, but I had my cousin Walter, and he, when in the first five years, when he was drinking, he was a brilliant poet. Yes, there can be people who temporarily, for a while, they would have some apparently positive results from getting drunk and doing some artistic creativity. But even that is a lie, because in 50 years, the demon of the alcohol will make, will crush them, will kneel them, and then will uh, use them in the other way as well. So I'm not insisting there, but Jesus says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, how? Simply because the man is cleaning the house. Like, I shall not drink for the next 12 years, I shall not touch alcohol. Because before, yesterday, I was an alcoholic. I had an alcohol problem. Like in the uh, Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is a form of exorcism. That organization, which has a certain amount of success, is a form of performing exorcism. All those people who are in AA... Those who succeed, they exorcise themselves from the demon of alcohol. That's why the people who organized AA, they did not even manage to make it a non-religious institution. Because when they made it without God, the people did not find the moral resources to stop drinking. Only in the moment when Alcoholics Anonymous contained prayers and appeal to the power of God... Then a certain percentage of the people into Alcoholics Anonymous, they manage to cut the alcohol for life. And then you know, you've seen in so many American movies that they come to a meeting and they say, Hello, my name is Walter. Is there a Walter? Is there a Walter? Because I was warned by somebody there was a Walter in the school in January or December. And I don't want to offend anybody. I can very easily change it to Oscar. No, Oscar is the second in line. For this kind. So, okay, if there is no Walter, then I stick with Walter, you know? <clears throat> and then they go and say, I am Walter, I am an alcoholic, I have been clean for the last 15 years. And everybody claps and says, good job, Walter, you know? This is what it is. Walter has eliminated the demon. Until 15 years ago, Walter was possessed by a demon, which is the demon of alcohol. And there are demons of everything, if you want to take it like this. Try to think about the seven capital sins and any other things which goes there. So when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it sometimes does come. Either because Jesus tells him, leave him. And then it happens, but not through your opinion, through Jesus' power. Or it happens because the person gets desperate and says, enough is enough. My life is a nightmare. I fucked up and fucked up and fucked up and fucked up. You know? And some people say, and they still drink. They don't have the power to stand up. This is called revolting or rebelling, having a rebellion on your knees. You are still on your knees. And you say, I'm a shithead. I'm a loser. I fucked up my life. My wife has been unhappy all her life. Well, and then you go and drink again. Like it's you see in that crazy movie with people taking heroin, which they made part two recently, where the guy is coming back and he's re-becoming a loser. Train spotting. No, train spotting. The great movie 
you know, where they, all the time they said, I'm going to change my life. Tomorrow it's new. Then again they shot heroin, you know. It was impossible for them to stop. And here in part two, for those who haven't seen it, there is a guy who after 30 years, he has been clean of heroin and then he starts shooting again. He's just falling again and he re-becomes a loser together with all the other irritating losers. You know, when you look from outside, if you are not a junkie of any kind, you look at those people and say, man, if I would catch these people, I'll take them like this and bang them head against head like coconuts. You know, I'd bang their heads together. Maybe one of them wakes up or something like you feel like it's unacceptable. You know, it's so blind. And still people are very often like that. No, people cannot stop from eating sugar. Sugar has been demonstrated to produce mental problems. There are schools in America and other places where they forbade the sugar in the school, like the pupils, the children, when they come in the school, they receive no sugar. And all the antisocial behavior of the children stopped in three weeks because they were not receiving sugar. And there is research on the internet which demonstrates that sugar is four times more addicted, addictive than cocaine. Like it's almost impossible for somebody who has a sweet tooth to quit sugar. But that's exactly what you should do because that sugar is a demon. It's the white death. Just for the heck of it, you should take six months without sugar. Even if you don't believe in anything about anything, you should say, let me see what the fuck will happen if I don't touch a grain of sugar, not even in soups and in sauces and hidden in chips or, you know, like I'm looking on the labels and if there is any form of sugar, I will refuse it. I will not touch sugar for six months. Then you will see amazing things are happening when you do that. So I'm telling you all this because it is possible even without Jesus and exorcism, to take out an evil spirit, some evil influences. You stop smoking and you say, this is an evil spirit, which is closing down my Anahata Chakra. I don't want my Anahata Chakra closed down. So I'm not going to touch any fucking cigarette or nicotine or anything like this for the next seven years of my life, just to see how I become, what kind of other person do I become if I don't touch this thing. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. That's exactly how Swami Shivananda describes the fate of a soul after death, when the soul doesn't have a good karma and it goes through places which are slightly hellish. You are dead and you are not going like the Bible says in a green place with shadow where there is river and coolness, you are going through an arid place. You are just going like you are thrown in the middle of a desert or something. And in your hallucination, in your afterlife, that's exactly what Jesus implies. The demons belong to astral worlds which have a very unpleasant resonance. The demons never lived in charming places. That's why there was the story in Kashmiri Shaivism that Kashmir being one of the most beautiful places on earth, the people of Kashmir were almost not at all demonic or violent or anything because even the nature was something so super friendly and relaxed and cool and not tortured by the heat, not tortured by 
tsunamis, not tortured by anything, being one of the most peaceful and harmonious places on earth. But the demon, when he is thrown out, he finds himself by the law of resonance in his own environment. For example, if the demon is on Manipura, and many demons are on Manipura, it has to go in a world of Manipura. How are the worlds of Manipura? Manipura is the element of fire. And therefore, the worlds of Manipura are all worlds of fire. Either it's Mount Doom from the Lord of the Rings, or it's a desert, a scorching desert, or it's the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah, or whatever. Every time when the hells of Manipura are illustrated, they are illustrated like unpleasant places where there is too much fire in one form or another. So here Jesus intuitively speaks about a demonic entity of fire because he doesn't say that the demon goes through a swamp. He is in mud up till here and he finds himself walking through mud and saying that guy has thrown me out. No, that would be a Svadhisthana demon. That would be a Muladhara demon, water and earth. But a demon of fire finds himself going through arid places. Of course, the Palestinians, the Palestinian cultures, the Israeli in particular, they were more focused on this because they lived in the desert. And for them, the desert things were very well known. It was very illustrative for them. So basically, you know, it, that's where it comes from. Like when a demon comes out, where does he go? He doesn't go for a holiday to Switzerland. He goes back to hell. That's why the demons don't want when they find a host. They love their host. Because without their host, they will be back in hell. Because that's where they belong. And thus, the demon is not happy. And he says, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Why? Because the demon is usually having a rajasic nature. All those who did level 2 in Agama, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Tamas, Rajas, Sattva. Rajas is the middle guna of the three gunas. And when somebody is full of rajas, for those of you who don't understand what it means yet, it means you are full of fire and full of desire. Ah, 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 hankering all the time. You know, having a lot of passion for, you know, while the yogis, they try to go into dispassion. Buddha is advising you to be detached. And people say, man, if I'm detached, I'm as good as dead. That's because you are possessed by too much passion. You are possessed. Buddha is not dead. To be calm and in peace and focused is not at all to be dead. But the person who has not found God or a certain amount of wisdom yet says, Come on, man, for me it's like I would be dead. I cannot give up everything. Yes, you have to give up everything. All the foolishness and all the maya and all the Fata Morgana, and all the glamour, and all the mirage, and all, oh, you know, I could become famous, I could become rich, I could have tons of sex, I could... it's all of it you are dreaming, it's all of it desires, 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 without end. You have to put an end, you have to put your foot down and say, now I will live without desires for a while. I want to see if one can be calm, satisfied, happy, centered, 
in oneself without desiring anything in particular. Yeah, but you might not fulfill your life. Yeah, right. You know, that's the lie which is being told to you, that if you have passion, your life will turn into something. It will not. It's the biggest lie in the universe. It's samsara who is telling you, come. That's why they called even a perfume, I think, from Guerlain. Or something is called samsara. You know, it smells good. It makes you horny. Oh, darling, you like my perfume. Let's have sex, you know. It's like desire, desire, generating desire, you know. And people say, if I don't have desire, I'm dead. Or enlightened. It's not only dead. Dead people do have desires because they die with their desires. And next week you are going to find out that people take their desires beyond the grave to them. And they suffer from their desires in the afterlife as well. The desires never stop. The only way desires can stop is when you reach nirvana. And Buddha says that's the first time when you will stop having pain. Because pain is coming from desires. Pain is coming from the fact that you have desires and you cannot fulfill them. And because you cannot fulfill your desires, you suffer because of the frustration. This is happening everywhere, all the time. It's the cause of suffering. So, he seeks rest and does not find it. Please remember, we all seek for rest. Jesus says a great truth here. The soul, even the soul of a demon, is looking for rest. But Buddha finds it, and the demon does not find it. It was Stanislav Grof who said a great truth. He said, it's strange to see that mystics and crazy people, they swim in the same waters. With the only difference that mystics find bliss there and the mad people keep suffering. That's the whole thing. Because the soul is seeking for rest. Your soul has been in samsara for millions and gazillions of years. And all that your soul truly wants is not power and fulfillment. And that's, those are samskaras in your mind who talk to you and they pretend they are your soul. But that's still part of your mask. What your soul wants is nirvana, peace, extinction, being with God in a clear consciousness as the witness of the universe, like Shiva, the eye of the cyclone, the center of the universe. So Jesus says a fundamental truth here, that even the demon goes, but then he cannot suck the energy and do his thing, and he does not, he goes in an unpleasant place, which is arid, he describes like in the desert, and he cannot find rest. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. That's the problem. The fucking demons, they never give up. They never give up. They try again and again, exactly like a mosquito or like a fly. You have a fly, and suddenly as you are swapping around, you touch it in the air. Slap! And you say, that will teach you a lesson, yeah? Three seconds later, the fly is back on your nose. You know, the fucking thing never gives up. It's not a coincidence that the devil, even in the paragraph which I read before, it is called Beelzebub. I cannot pronounce it well in Hebrew, 
because I'm not born in that country. But in the original Hebrew, Beelzebub, or something which sounds very much like it, means the Lord of the Flies. Because the mystics who lived in Palestine in the desert, they were constantly tortured by flies. The flies were the biggest, and, and they didn't have mosquito nets in those days. No? And you would expect that the fly or the mosquito would learn a lesson. They don't. They don't. You have to squash them. Otherwise, they, you have to send them permanently away. Otherwise, they don't stop. They don't know what it means to stop. They are acting by a very primitive instinct. Go, 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 go. So Jesus puts it here like in a romantic story. The demon gets bored and is dissatisfied, didn't find rest. And he says, I will return to the house that I left. Like a fly on your nose. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Because that's the effect of not being possessed by a demon. The house is put in order. Which means when the demon was there, the house was in disorder. This is the house. This is the house. This is the house. Is your house in order and clean? Sometimes yes, very often no. When you are vegetarian for 20 years and you don't touch alcohol and you don't take drugs and you don't do this and you don't eat meat and you don't do this, then your house is clean and in order because you are eliminating all the, or at least many, many, of the possibilities to produce disorder. Well, you can say, yeah, but I am a, a vegetarian, I don't take drugs, I don't drink alcohol, I don't do this, I don't do that, and I'm chaotic. Why? Because I'm completely addicted to sex. Yeah, so that means you didn't mention all the doors and all the things. There can be demons of money. I have everything okay, but I'm completely greedy for money. Then I'm not at peace. And my house is not in order and it's not clean. Remember, even the demon notices that when he comes out, the house is swept clean and put in order. That's what's happening when you get rid of demonic forces. No? If any one of you says, I don't know why, but my last year, my life has been a mess. You must be tormented by some demonic forces, maybe some mild ones or very discreet ones, but there is no chaos without demonic influences. Without demonic influences, your house is swept clean and the house is in order. It's very important to remember this because Jesus is giving you a way to evaluate your life. Like, am I swept clean and in order or not? And the house is therefore different. He cannot access it. And then what's happening? Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. You understand? It's exactly like you eliminate a bacteria. And then that bacteria becomes immune to antibiotics. And when it comes back, you can't kill it anymore. So is with a demon. If you let it come back, it would come back stronger. The, like uh, Star Wars again. The empire strikes back. They always strike back, right? 
you try to give up smoking and it strikes back. There will be a crisis where your boyfriend dumps you and it's in the same day where your cat is dying and it's in the same week where you quarrel bitterly with your parents and then you are completely depressed and crushed. And you say, uh, you know, enough is enough, too much is too much, I need a cigarette, I'm going crazy. That was just the original demon coming with seven others trying to crush you down because it says, this was mine. It's like Russia. It says Ukraine was the Soviet Union. And somehow the fucking Americans and Europeans, they managed to split the Soviet Union. And now we are not what we used to be. And we need to take Ukraine back. We need to take everything back to come back to where we were. No, I'm not saying that politically, maybe they're even right. I don't know. It depends what the Ukrainians want to do in the end, because they have the choice. But what I'm trying to say here, it's not a surprise to see things coming back. Things will come back. The demons will not put up with the status quo. They say just a year ago, we were so happy inside Walter. We were dancing a jig on the head of Walter and it was all messy. And now we are back in hell and we are having no fun. Nothing is to battle against Walter. Walter, 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 Walter. This is one thing which is happening when you come to spirituality. And I don't want to scare you, but it's better you know it from the very beginning. In the moment when you start cleaning yourself and elevating yourself, the demons will strike back. And that's why many spiritual people, for the period until they reach nirvana, for the period while they climb the mountain, it's an uphill effort. You are sweating. Some idiot was telling to one of our senior teachers as argument that Agama can't be a good spiritual place. It said, but there were people who came to Agama and they suffered. They never told it to me because I would have told them, are you kidding me? Of course they suffered and all of you will. Because you are climbing a mountain and you are fighting against the demons. And their task is to make your life hell. And therefore, don't expect that you came to Agama and I am Dr. Feel Good. You know, you came here to have fun. You came here to climb the mountain. If you want. If you don't want, you can spread, spend some time around here. Learn some sexual tricks from our Tantra workshops. Uh, do a little bit of gymnastics, especially our dynamic sadhana, you know, hop like monkeys up and down. It doesn't go too deep or something like this, you know. And then go home happily and say next year I'm in New Zealand doing bungee jumping and living in a hobbit village, you know. Like, if that's what you understand about life and about what you want to do with your life, fine. It's fine by me. I'm not. I'm a different person. I am built in a different way in my head. And I have made different choices in my life. And I don't expect you to be like me. And I, when I find fanatics who are like me, I'm very happy. I'm very happy because I'm not the only crazy person on this planet. But most of the people are not. Most of the people look and say, come on, man, this Swami, he's a little bit too much. Yes. I agree, for most people I am. You know, and then people say, we came to Agama and we suffered. If I do this, 
and I bend a lot and a lot, I have an unbearable pain right here. So does it mean that I should not do Hatha Yoga anymore because I suffer? But I do, you know, I fucking do it. You know, I'm saying, come on, you know, you have to go, you have to listen, you know, I do it. So the fact that you suffer or you don't suffer doesn't prove anything. On the contrary, there are Christian saints who took this as a landmark and they said, if you are in a monastery, they speak for Christians, you know, and they say, if you are in a monastery and you think you are doing some spiritual work and your life is very placid and very comfortable, something is really wrong because it means you are not pissing off any demon and they are not making war against you. And that's a sure sign that you are doing something wrong. Because everybody who climbed the mountain, they had to cut the way with the machete through the bushes, you know. They had to really climb the mountain. So when somebody is coming and telling me, oh, but the people came to do spiritual work and they suffered. Yes, so did I, so did he, so did she, so does him, and so does her. Everybody does. Spirituality and the spiritual path is not a place where you don't make effort. You make a lot of effort to surpass your own ego, to clean your house, to put it in order, to, to deal with your shit, you know, to bring your shit together, as they say, and so on. You do. It's an effort. And that effort, sometimes you even have relapses. No? I remember, I will always remember this. I just, after I have done less than a year of yoga with my Hatha Yoga teacher, I had to go to the town, to the city where my parents were living. And I told to my yoga teacher, I want to see how this will work if I'm not with you and if you don't support me with aspiration, energy or anything. So please just take off your hand from me and let me go to the city of my parents for one month or two months. It was the university holiday. No? And then in the autumn when I'm back, we continue. In that holiday, I did not do one minute of Hatha Yoga. Not one minute. I forgot everything. I became like... No? Then when I came back and I restarted practicing, then I knew. I knew what it means to relapse. Everybody can have a relapse. Everybody can relapse. Yes, it's true. I did not start eating meat or smoking or other things. I did not. But I went a few steps back instantaneously. Many people tell me the same. Swamiji, when we are with you in Thailand, it's humming. I went home. And I had to make money. I had to work. And I became very negligent. And then when I came here, I felt ashamed for two weeks. And then I started fucking practicing again. You know? That's how it is. That's the role of a master. That's the role of a teacher. That's why people go to ashrams and to teachers to learn. Because that's exactly the role. To pump you up with aspiration and to pump you up with clarity. And to give you this energy and this motivation. Like practice, clean your house, bring your shit together. Because otherwise you don't realize, but you are in a war. You are in the middle of a battlefield. And they are not neutral against you. They are forces that would love to see you stop and give up everything and break down. And that's precisely why a person who is awake 
can never give up and can never break up precisely because of that. No? Okay. If the demons want me to give up, then it means that the best thing to be on the side of Jesus, to be with me or not against me, is that I have to not do exactly that. Ever. Ever. That's exactly what the Dalai Lama says. He has that famous speech where he says, never give up. You never give up. Whatever happens, how many times you fail, you never give up. No? That's beautiful. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. So, Jesus, he says, expect backlashes. Expect that it strikes back. And when it strikes back, it strikes back stronger than before. Because it says the strength which I had before was not enough. This guy chased me out immediately. I have to go back with double strength. And then the temptation becomes bigger. Does it mean that you are doomed? No. Because the other side, which is Jesus, or if you prefer the angels, the masters from Shambhala, they also have the right to play the same game. If the dark side is playing this game, then the bright side is also playing the same game to keep things in balance. And therefore it says, oh, but here is more spirituality for you. Here is more inspiration. Here is more aspiration. Here is more of the spiritual thing for you. And then you say, no, uh, you know, I think six months ago, if this would have happened to me, I would have started smoking again. But no way that's going to happen now. No, like you become also stronger and you have a support inside your heart. And then the war is proportional. It's always proportional. And he says the final condition of the man who allows himself in this state of possession is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But as you know, Jesus is only partly connected to his mother because he is not a spirit coming from the earth. He is not an incarnation of some Tom, Dick and Harry. He is an avatar. And therefore, while Mary became very important in the Christian environment, and of course, he gave her his love when he was five years old, he was getting food from Mary. You know, so it's like, of course, he loved Mary as a mother with the instinct of a child. But that did not make him say, I'm so spiritual because my mother was so spiritual. He says, my mother has got nothing to do with it. You are materialistic. This is a materialistic way of thinking. No? That you are, you know, you are spiritual. Blessed is the mother who made such a child. Like it's her merit. And in a certain biological way, it is. But that merit is not a spiritual merit. It's not a virgin Mary who gave to Jesus her spirituality. Jesus is... And was the God of Virgin Mary. And therefore Jesus is the one who gave to Virgin Mary her spirituality. Not the other way around. But this woman is possessed by this instinctual thing. When my father heard that I want to be a yogi. He said, don't you want to have some children who will continue? That's the only way for a man to perpetuate his existence in this world. Through the DNA which you put in your children and the memory which they... I told him that you are just a Marxist materialistic idiot. 
You know, you are thinking in purely material, like you think that survival is a matter of DNA and flesh. But the children of Albert Einstein were idiots. The children of, um, of uh, what's his name? Mahatma Gandhi, they were idiots. The children of Isaac Newton, if he had any, or of Leonardo da Vinci, if he had any, nobody even knows who they were or what they did. And if Jesus would have had children, they probably would have been idiots as well. No? So like, why, why does everybody believe in this stupid, racistic thing that the son of the king is a special person, he has blue blood, and he has to be the next king? Because usually the son of the king is an idiot. And like, why does it, why there is some, this is a superstition coming from very old days, and that it contains nothing. And thus, uh, this woman is coming with this nonsense. Oh, blessed. You are a great man, Jesus. This was a great discourse. Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's the real thing which matters. Forget about my mother. You remember that there are stories with the mother of Jesus coming to the door. And somebody comes and says, Jesus... Your mother is out there and she would like to have... She's like, I'm in the middle of the satsang, for God's sake. My mother, if she's a real spiritual person, she can come and sit there and listen to the satsang. And when I will be over and I will say goodbye to everybody, then she can come and tell me what she had to tell me. But no, my mother wants a special treatment. Interrupt your satsang for Jesus. Interrupt the Sermon on the Mount and go and talk to your mom. Because she wants to tell you, you know, I made a new sweater made of wool for you. Like, I shit on your sweater made of wool. My life as Jesus has nothing to do with the fucking woolen sweater. You know, that's not what about my life is. You're just boring me to death with this materialistic nagging. I gave you a sweater because I heard it's cold in the evening, you know. Like, does Jesus care about this? Like, of course, it's very nice she made a sweater. She's a mother. She has motherly feelings. But the spiritual things are a hundred times more important than this. No? And Jesus is cutting it short because a woman is trying to bring it down. Oh, blessed is your mother and so on. That's what they do in India. Uh, Swami Shivananda was born from the family of the famous Tamil saint. Tirumula. What has that got to do with anything? I met in Istanbul, they still keep the hierarchy. There is a guy in a Sufi Darga in Istanbul who is the 56th descendant of Rumi. He's from the bloodline of Rumi. If I would have been like Chogyam Trungpa, like a mad guru, I would have told him, Mr. Ali, or whatever his name was, I piss on you. You know, like, show me that you can go in Samadhi. Show me that you love Allah. Then you represent Rumi. The fact that you have the blood from Rumi, it's so boring, you know. So what if you have the blood of Rumi in your veins? If you are an idiot, you are an idiot with the blood of Rumi in his veins. You know, why is that relevant in any way? No? People always tend to put this thing, humanity is built on kings and aristocrats and blue blood and lines and this and that. Uh, it's the son, he's the nephew of Genghis Khan and therefore he's important. He's not. He's not. 
they do this mistake in so many religions. So Jesus is definitely the one who cuts the family line. He even says, man's worst enemies will be his own family. The man's worst enemy who will betray him will be his brother and his father. And father, brother will betray brother for my sake and all that. Like he on the contrary. He goes against the grain and says all these illusions that you guys have that family lineages mean something. Forget about it. So the woman says blessed is the mother who gave. I mean the intention was very nice. That woman simply was happy with what she was hearing and she wanted to praise Jesus. But she praised him in a way which provoked him. And then he replied blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's the only thing which matters to Jesus. He is God. He tells the word of God. And unfortunately people are not listening to it. Are not obeying. And we move to the further through the paragraphs. As the crowds increased. Can you imagine what it was? I am talking to you with a microphone. And it's just a... 30 people, 25 people here, and I'm talking with a microphone and all that. Can you imagine if Jesus gave food to 5,000 men and presumably 5,000 women and some number of children? Can you imagine what it is to be in Palestine outside with the crickets singing and the frogs croaking and the birds uh, cawing or whatever they do? And you have to speak to 12,000 people in the open, in open space. Okay, you can climb on a boulder, you can climb on a hole. Have you ever seen 12,000 people gathered in a place in front of you and you would try to speak to them without a microphone? Like, can you imagine what it was when 12,000 crazy people knew that there is a man who is supposed to be God or who is supposed to be some miracle maker? And if you touch him, you can get healthy or something like this. Can you imagine the collective hysteria at a time where humanity was also still a bit primitive? You know, we're talking about primitive cultures from 2000 years ago where people were bosculating. And today it happens that people go to a stadium in Argentina or they go to a temple in India or they go to the Mecca in Saudi Arabia and they stampede and they trample on each other and suddenly 150 people are dead, trampled by the others. Like wherever you have big crowds of people, it's a nightmare. It's a, you know, and, and Jesus was there without any way of controlling except his charisma. And so that's why he says the crowd increased. So there were more and more people and Jesus then is becoming a bit more stern because it's less elite and more mob. And he says, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. In the final part, in the beginning part, Jesus never made allusion to this thing with miracles and so on. And then he started pushing the envelope and doing some things. And people were like, huh? What? Did that really happen? 
who, you know, until in one year, two years, Jesus becomes known that, ah, it's that guy who raised Lazarus. It's that guy who raised the daughter of Jairus. It's that guy who healed lepers and blind people. Oh, we heard. People hear more and more. And then uh, people have a problem. Even Peter, who was with him day and night, when he saw Jesus walking on water, I don't know if that episode was there or was not, it doesn't matter. It's in the Bible, I don't know if I read it in this uh, season or some other time. Uh, Jesus walked on water and Peter said, well, if you can walk on water since you say you are God, it means you can also make me walk on water. And Jesus said, sure, come on, come to me. And Peter confidently stepped on the surface of the water and he walked. And then Jesus, he did not advertise for it, but he did something. Like he put him in that state, like Anthony Robbins can put you on fire walking. And you walk on fire in the Unleash the Power Within. It's a special workshop where Anthony Robbins makes people walk on fire. And then... Jesus did something which Anthony Robbins would not do, of course, because it would result in disaster. Jesus withdrew the power. Like, he put him in the state, he met him go three meters, and then he took it to see if he can do it by himself now, out of inertia. Since you walk three meters, you can walk 30 meters, right? And Peter fell into the water like a piece of iron. And Jesus took him out of the water and told him the famous sentence, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Like, Peter walked three meters on water, and then he suddenly felt that what if it's not working anymore? And in the moment when he had that thought, he fell into the water. It's enough to have that thought to interrupt the magic. People say, Swamiji, is that true? Like, everybody does have the right to have doubts. No, Jesus didn't have any doubts. And all the saints who became enlightened, they did not have any doubts. They knew about some things without any doubts. So the fact that you say, um, uh, but I still do have some doubts, that's just the sign that you are not there yet. I think it was Augustine or one of the big saints of Christianity who said doubts, Doubt, when you have doubt, is the most sure sign of lack of grace. Like when you have no grace, you immediately start doubting. When you are full of grace, there's no doubt. You walk like Peter on the water. You know, you just go and you never look back. So, this story is very exemplary. Because as Jesus is going on, people keep asking... For more miracles. Because somebody says, I heard that yesterday you healed Lazarus. And I was not here. And basically he says, I think it's all bullshit. I think everybody is making it up. Because I haven't seen it. Could you show it to me? Could you heal someone else? The problem is that when Jesus does it, people say he, he's doing, he must be doing it with the power of devil. Even then, they cannot accept it. Because the jump is too big in their mind. They would have to change all their lives and all their background. And they can't do that. And then they try to find an excuse. Maybe the person that you are looking for 
is dead. Like that lawyer, which I was telling you in the beginning, you know. It, we, I would prefer if the person was dead. Because then we don't have to make a case in court. So it's the same here. I would prefer not to change my life. And I would prefer to discover that you were cheating. That Jesus may be, uh, yes, he did some paranormal act. But we discovered with surprise that that paranormal act was done through the power of some demons. And therefore it has no value in the picture of God. So you, you don't have to change your lives. You don't have to trust in that man. You don't have to follow him because he was doing it by the demons. And therefore uh, flush him down the toilet. You know, he is a bastard. You know, we don't need him anywhere uh, around us. So... People say, we wish to see a miracle. Because Jesus says, the crowds increased. Like, what was everybody expecting? More discourses? No. Everybody was expecting to see some new miracle. Because people knew that their faith can be nourished. And Jesus, as he comes close to the end, and especially when he comes in front of his judges who claim that they can judge him, while they are not worthy to tie his shoelaces, but they claim that they can judge him, Jesus refuses to give them satisfaction. He says, I have done until now, and I'm not willing to do some more. Please realize that this is an incredible spiritual measure which Jesus is having. Because Jesus said at least a couple of times, he said, I did not come here, which means in Israel, in Palestine, out of my own ego trip to show off and to show you I'm Jesus who's with me. He says, I came here to tell you and to show you what my father in heaven told me to show you, which basically Jesus says, it's a moment of grace. Normally, you wouldn't have seen me coming and doing this. But because the planet Earth is so fucked up, God said we need a big push down there. So, uh, Jesus, you have three years and a half. And in these three years and a half, you can do 75 miracles. Five of this, 25 of those. You can even raise three dead people. And this, and that there is a list of to do. You have a warrant for this. And no more. Basically, Jesus says, I have a list to show you. Because God thinks it will improve your faith. And it will generate a wave of aspiration and spirituality for the next 1000 years. So, here it is. I am giving, not because I want and now, my list is coming close to an end. And of course, you say, give us another one. Give us another one. Show us more. Well, you know, you showed us things, and we still think you are doing it with the Lord of the demons. So, can you heal one more? So, you know, we really want to believe you. But Jesus says, I can't 100% make you believe me. Because if God would want everybody to be 100% convinced, 
you would have been convinced long time ago. God doesn't even need me, Jesus, to convince you. God could just appear and do whatever and then you would all flat down on the floor, you know. You would say, okay, Baba, you are the boss, you know. Now we know, sorry, we were having doubts. But, but God is never doing that because doubt is part of the human condition. It's part of finding your freedom. You cannot find your freedom if you are convinced by force, if you are coerced by force. So Jesus says there was need for something to show you because you had fallen too much down. But I cannot show you too much either because then I start giving you what God didn't send me to give you. I start giving you faith too much and that's also not allowed. It's an incredible measure to be in the middle of this flow. What a flow was life of Jesus with people coming out of the graves and blind people started seeing. And yet he knew exactly when to stop. Because people usually don't know when to stop. When it starts moving fantastically, Jesus would say, I'm here. I'm going to turn the fucking world upside down. And then Jesus would come and say, Son, I didn't send you there for that. I sent you just for a measure, for an injection of faith. And an injection, not two injections, not ten injections. One. One is enough for this moment of history for those people. That's all humanity deserves at this point, so that we bring it to the balance point, and then it stays. You don't give more medicine than is necessary. You give just the medicine which is necessary. Jesus implies this, and this shows very clearly how much everything is subordinated to a divine plan. Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous son, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. You had to know the Jewish prophet to know what is this story with Jonah. Jonah is allegedly a man, a Jewish prophet, who was swallowed by a sea monster called Leviathan by the Greeks, which uh, actually Leviathan is a word which is used in Hebrew for whales and other big creatures. And basically in the Bible you would sometimes read in some translations that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And somehow Jonah survived in the stomach of the whale. If I remember correctly, it might not be true, but it doesn't matter. For three days, and after three days he found his way out. Jesus is here predicting in a very twisted way his own death and resurrection. He says, the last miracle which will be shown, and even that one most people will not believe into it because they will think we haven't seen it with our own eyes. So how do we know it's true? There is one more which will be the cherry on top of the cake. And that will be the sign of Jonah. Like I will do like Jonah. I will be swallowed by the earth, which means put in a tomb, dead. And after three days, I shall be out again. Resurrection is the last miracle which happens and uh, it's not entirely entirely true there are minor miracles which people cannot really see 
For example, when Jesus was crucified, the Catholic Church claims that a woman, God knows from where, uh, I don't know why she's called, she seems to be called Veronica, but Veronica means a woman from Verona, from Italy. So maybe there was an Italian woman accompanying the Roman soldiers there. A woman seeing Jesus full of sweat and blood and agony, she wipes his face. She takes a handkerchief and wipes his face. And on that piece of cloth, today, that piece of cloth still exists, there is the face of Jesus on it. The face of Jesus remained imprinted on that cloth. But uh, people did not see that right then, like uh, this Veronica, she came and said, See, this man that you are crucifying, look, his face appeared on my piece of cloth. Like it was, not, it was too late. It was not something which was seen. Also, when Jesus was on the cross, one of the two thieves that was crucified together with him asked for him to be saved. And he said, look, the other, the other guy, the other thief is an idiot. But I know, we know, you know, we are criminals. We have been thieves. We did theft and murder and whatever. You are innocent. Everybody knows that you are not a criminal like us. So we don't even know why you are being crucified. And he simply says like this, if, if you are who you say you are, then can you please also save me? And Jesus does that. He turns to this man who is a thief, who has not done a minute of yoga, but he has the advantage that he is humble. He is humble. And he tells him, I tell you the truth, tonight, this very night, you shall be with me in paradise. That's a miracle, but again, are you sure? Were people there sure that it was going to happen? These are miracles which cannot be demonstrated. They are not visible and overwhelming. So in a certain way, Jesus is telling, now the miracles are over. Now we are running out of inertia. We just keep the momentum of what has happened in these three years until now. And people are coming more and more like, give us another one. Give us another one. And I'm giving it to them and they say, I do it by the devil. So it doesn't really matter. Now, now people are just prodding me. I have become a dancing bear. You know, people are prodding me and say, bear, Jesus, the bear, dance, man, dance for us. Show us another one. You know, there is no more use. It's finished. Now it's finished. You know, it's like if I do 50 more miracles, it will not matter even a little one millimeter more. And it's not worth it. And he knows God did not send me to do much more. Impress them at any cost, Jesus. Can you imagine what Jesus would have done if God would have told him, impress them at any cost? A person who was part of something which is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Can, you can't even imagine how far Jesus would have been able to go. No? You are thinking about banal things like Jesus would have been flying through the air like a bird, like Milarepa, and said, Oh, ye of little faith, listen to me, you know. This is, David Copperfield does that in Las Vegas every day, you know. This is not the point. Jesus, I mean, Jesus would have been able to do inimaginable things which would have crushed anybody's doubt in a second. But he was not sent to do that. Jesus didn't give to the world his full hand, his whole hand, as it is said. Come on, Jesus, give it the whole hand. Show us what you can do. 
Jesus did not show a hundredth part of what he could do. Because that was not the historical moment. He didn't come to show off, to show off, to show, you know, let me show you what the Son of God can do. He came because there was a severe problem in the world and he was sent to fix it. And he is fixing it by giving exactly the right amount of medicine to restore the situation of humanity. So, none, he simply says it, like he is becoming, he's very nasty in this way. He says, no sign will be given. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. As Jonah went through that, Jonah went to that strange prophet, go and read, go and, the Bible is online, on internet, and you can, of course, find the chapter on Jonah and read it. And he says that the last thing would be this, that I will disappear, I will be swallowed, not by a whale, but by the earth, the sign of Jonah, and I will come back and still be alive. So he implies, but they don't know what he's talking about. They can't understand what he's talking They think he's talking rubbish. And he says, this is how the Son of Man will be to this generation. And let's just finish this page. Just a few more lines, just five more minutes. He then speaks in parables. He says, the Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. He says, I have done all that I have done, and some of these idiots still believe I am doing it with a demon or I am a cheater, and I am going to give the sign of Jonah, which means... It's the unique thing of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ has many elements which are unique. Although people who want to put Jesus down, they say, Oh, it happened to Osiris. It happened to Parvati. It happened to... Not in the way of Jesus. Far, far, completely different. In a totally different way. It's not the same thing. There are many forms of resurrection in the legends of the world and in the myths of the world, but not specifically in the same body as Jesus and all that. I don't want to go there now because we are not discussing that. But then he simply says, I will give that sign and he knows. Still the society will be split because the medicine is just enough for 50%. It's just enough to bring people from 20% to 50, but not to 100, to 50. God told him, bring them back to 50, because they have to be in the twilight zone, so that they can make their own personal choices, each and every one of them. And therefore, Jesus says, the Queen of the South, that's the famous Queen of Sheba, as she is called, it's a story from the life of Solomon. King, King Solomon was attended by a queen called the Queen of Sheba, and she loved Solomon, and she liked his wisdom. And there is a read, read in the book of Solomon about what happened with this. He calls her here the Queen of the South, because she was known by that name as well, probably coming from somewhere the south of Israel, Africa, or mm, mm, Sinai, or I don't know enough history and Bible story to tell you these details. So, But there is a character there. 
And he says, the queen of the south will rise at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Please understand, this is the principle of reference of a landmark. Like, you are dying in the same year or the same period of time. It doesn't matter because the queen of the south lived 2000 300 years ago and you are dying and when you die Peter at the gates of paradise says you didn't kill anybody you didn't steal you fornicated a little bit let's see how we deal with that one uh, but you really do have some negative karma because you ate too much meat you paid for animals to be killed because you are a fucking ferocious tiger and you like to eat animals, to produce murder of animals. All those animals which you ate for 30, 40, 50, 80 years, they have built up a handsome pile of negative karma for you. And you say, but Peter, I couldn't have lived without meat. And then Peter is going to call Ramakrishna. And says, Ramakrishna, is it true that this guy couldn't have eaten couldn't have lived without eating meat. And Ramakrishna is going to say, I have to bring witness in front of God that a human being can very well live without meat and reach spirituality and have this. Like, you, there is always a comparison. You know? And Jesus says, when, he, when the people will be judged and they will say, uh, you didn't really fall for Jesus. You didn't really follow Jesus. And they are going to say, Yeah, but the circumstances were very confusing. And then Peter is going to call the Queen of Sheba. Please come a little bit here and tell us, compared to your life, how, how confusing was it for these people? Because they say it was confusing. And he says, God, your guardian angel, is going to bring the Queen of Sheba from history and the queen of Sheba will rise at the judgment and condemn them. The queen of Sheba will stand in front of them and will say, Bullshit! Bullshit! How do you have the cheek of saying such a preposterous lie? You know it's a lie, and I, the queen of Sheba, I stand here as witness to God that you are eating shit. That this is shit. You are not. You are just trying to save yourself in the last moment. And it's a pathetic attempt. And it will not fly. It's a lie. For she came from the ends of the earth. To listen to Solomon's wisdom. A queen left her and she came to be a beggar there. To, be, to listen to Solomon like a guest. Like a traveler. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Like he says Solomon is not worth to tie my shoelaces, you know, like John the Baptist said, Solomon is a kindergarten kid compared to what I am and to what I'm showing to you. And the Queen of Sheba came, left her kingdom and so on, just to see Solomon. Then he says, when I am here, how much more should you make efforts to come and listen to me? Because, no, if she did that sacrifice for Solomon then you should do five times bigger sacrifices when I am here. Because I am not Solomon. I am God. 
I am the son of God visiting the earth once in a gazillion years, you know, and so on. And he says, you know, you are going to say, "Uh, but we were not sure and so on. And then Peter is going to call the queen of Sheba and say, tell to these people what you did and what they should have done so that they don't eat shit that uh, we didn't know and all that. See, Jesus is using a very powerful Socratic reason and he is using arguments which are crushing evidence. You know, it's like you can disagree with Jesus, but you cannot beat his arguments. Jesus is talking from where he is and he says, yeah, this generation wants only miracles and then they throw tomatoes at me and they think I'm doing it with the demons and they just want another one and another one and another one. But he says, this is a wicked generation. Like a thousand years ago, people would have believed me much more sincerely, you know. Now people are full of ego, full of this, full of that, full of impurities. And I'm coming here and spitting my blood for them. And in the end, what I will get will be a crucifixion and a lot of booing from all the stupid idiots. He knows it. He knows that people are ungrateful and that only a small number of people will understand and save their souls in the process. So he says, no more miracles. He is still doing some, paradoxically, although he is talking like this. He still has something up his sleeve, and he does a couple of things more. But he says, no miracles, nothing major, like multiplying breads and, you know, doing that. He says, no more miracles will be shown, except the sign of Jonas, which is this mysterious thing that he mentions, resurrection. But you know that many people did not believe in his resurrection because they didn't see it with their own eyes. It's just a limited number of people who saw Jesus after resurrection. Maybe 50 people saw Jesus after he raised, after resurrection. So those 50 people, people, other people say, come on, man, this one is too big. We can't believe. But he resurrected Lazarus after four days. Uh, yeah, even with that one, I was not there. Somebody told me, I don't know, and so on. No, like people have a problem in extending their faith. People cannot believe the doubts are a real cancer of the mind. The doubts are a very big disease of the mind. And Jesus says even that they will receive the sign of Jonah. And when the time will come, the queen of Sheba will come and tell you how stupid and weak you have been. Because you had me here and you could have obtained anything. Imagine there was a thief on the cross And he said, if you truly are God, please save me. All it took for him is to just be humble, not to provoke Jesus, to say, I think you're an asshole. Can you save me? No, 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 no. You cannot save me. You know, he didn't go shameless into the face of Jesus. He went, he was full of pain. He was crucified. The other thief was arrogant. And he said, if you are truly the son of God, why don't you make the nails come out of your flesh and walk freely from here? That was a manipuristic idiot. But the other thief probably had some anahata also. And being in pain and in agony, he naturally went into his anahata. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to fight with you. I'm dying. You are dying. We are both so fucked. At least I can say this much. If you are who you say that you are, can you please save me? Have mercy on me. 
That was the day. It was a day which he was waiting for a million years. That day saved him. That, that minute saved him. Because he said that to Jesus. And guess what Jesus did? Jesus couldn't say, nah, because you are a thief. No. It was just enough to ask. And then Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. Tonight you will be with me in paradise. Amazing. Amazing. No. All these people from Israel, he says, the queen of Sheba will spit in your face because the queen of Sheba will say, if I had Jesus, I would have come and tell him, my Lord, I came from the ends of the earth to meet you. Can you please grant me eternal life? Jesus would have said, no, because you are black. You are from Africa and I don't do black chicks. You know? That was enough. You know, the Queen of Sheba has all those of you who had Jesus. And you're the biggest idiots in history. You had God right in front of you. And all you had to do was to be nice. Was to just be humble, honestly in your heart. And to say, if you truly are what you are. You know, it's like, we want to believe you. Can you please help us? Help our suffering. Buddha, 500 years ago, because it was 500 years before Jesus, Buddha 500 years ago said that the essence of life is pain, that life is full of pain. Can you please stop that pain? Can you make us find eternal happiness? Can we find salvation? Can you help us? Please be merciful on us. Anybody here in this room believes Jesus would have said no? Jesus never said no to people who asked him nicely. Never. People who are humble, they always went straight to the heart of Jesus. So that's why Jesus knows very well who he is. And he says, you are having the jackpot right here with you. And you are shooting yourself in the foot like a bunch of idiots that you are. You know? And he said, at the judgment, even the queen of Sheba will stand in front of you and say, what a bunch of losers. Would I have been in your place? My goodness. You know, I would have caught God and never let him go anymore. You know, I would have stood at his door and washed his feet and gave him water and cooked him food and said, Jesus, you are here for three more months. I want to be the last of your slaves. You know, I can do anything. Just save my soul. That's all I'm asking, you know. Wouldn't it have happened? It would have happened. Because Jesus himself says, even if you go in the middle of the night to your friend and ask him, he will give you. Ask and it shall be given to you. But they were not. They said, maybe this man is doing it with the devil. Ah, we don't know. Show us another one. If you walk on water, can you also walk on fire? Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. Unfortunately, my dear friends, that generation was full of faith compared to what we live today. So, people are right. If Jesus would come again, as a master, as a teacher, he would probably not last three years and a half in this degree of Kali Yuga where we live today. Of course, Jesus is not announced that he will visit the planet again as a teacher. Jesus is told that the mystics have seen that Jesus will come back in glory to judge the living and the dead, which is a completely different story. Like there will be no more. Uh, oh, come on, Jesus. Uh, really, you know, this that, that chapter is finished. 
So um, it's up to you to make up your mind. I told you from the very beginning, you come to yoga, you don't even know if you believe in God. Because I and nobody in yoga or the Bible itself can demonstrate that there is God. There have been so many people who read the Bible and they said it's bullshit, it's an absurd book, it's hilarious, it's that Jesus is sometimes too much, uh, Jesus sounds like Donald Duck, it's an imaginary character, didn't even exist, this fellow, and all that. That's why if much, much greater souls than I could not demonstrate to you the existence of God, I cannot. And therefore... The, pur the purpose of yoga is just to teach you an experimental method which you can practice or not. The only thing which can make you see what is what is your own practice. The Shastras tell you about the cosmic consciousness which fills up this universe and which is in your crown chakra and which you can find. I, as your teacher tell you, indeed, there is a cosmic consciousness which impregnates all this universe. And if you do the right effort for the right amount of time, you can open your crown chakra and you can experience it directly, each and every one of you in this room. And all this is just smoke in the wind, except if you sit down and do it. And when it happens you will know if I was talking nonsense or not. So that's why in yoga we can talk about these things as an inspiration, but we know that the final demonstration always resides with you, because in your heart you have this freedom to choose whatever you need to choose today. Maybe tomorrow you will choose something else, but at every moment we make our own choices. That's why um, I'm interpreting here the words of a super giant spiritual presence in this humanity. I interpret it according to the knowledge of yoga, which was given to me by my gurus. I tell you that what Jesus says is perfectly consistent with the Shastras of yoga and with all the spirituality of the world. And therefore, I hope that these words and actions, together with my elucidations, are going to at least make you curious to try. Because I cannot do more than give you aspiration and curiosity and uh, motivation for you to try. And only your practice will make you see. And if you go to, you know... The Vivekananda of India was not yet enlightened when his guru Ramakrishna kept talking all the time about God, 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 God. And Vivekananda, I said this a hundred times, but it's so beautiful, I always love saying this one. Vivekananda challenged him and he said, what is this God? I mean, you know, I don't even know if there is a God. I'm a rationalist. I don't see God anywhere and so on. What is this God that you talk about? Can, like he said, for example, can you see God? No, because you keep talking about God and we others, we are like completely at a loss about it. Can you see at least this God? Why do you keep talking about God? Can you see it? And Ramakrishna, who was one of the most pure people that you can imagine, Ramakrishna, who was like a child, you know, 
he looked at Vivekananda and he said, I can see God better than I see you now. When a master like Vivekananda tells you that, you have only the possibility to say, I'm going to try to see the same thing. I'm going to wake up my spirit and see that. Or you can say, oh, this man is a schizophrenic. He should go to a hospital. He is lost. He's damaged goods, you know. You can go for it or not. So, um, I know that talking about the talkings of Jesus and many of you are new. I always see new faces coming, old faces from the past coming, some people regularly coming to these satsangs. Um, it always challenges some things, especially when Jesus is such an uncompromising thing. Like you say, Jesus, give us five years so we can decide. Jesus says there is no five years. There is right now. I, Jesus, didn't even preach for five years. I went like a meteorite for three years and a half in the Jewish history. And then some people decided yes. Some people decided no. And that was it. You know, that was it. It was good enough. That's what God wanted. So, um, the same process is happening generation after generation. Yoga is helping many people to recover their lost soul because yoga gives this experimental thing. Like, you know what? Beyond everything else, why don't you stand on your head? Why don't you do your shirshasana? Why don't you do your pranayama? Why don't you do your prana uchara? Why don't you meditate with your mantras? What don't you, you know, like it's it's as simple as that in the end. You believe or you don't believe and you say this Jesus thing I'm going to see it. 30 minutes of pranayama with vowels. Ah, uh, you know like it's simple, it's down to earth. You believe or you don't believe but you always have this lever of practice. Let's do the practice and see where it goes, what is happening. And let's see if this was a fairy tale or not. So, that's why I hope that from the standpoint of yoga, this doesn't sound so sectarian or religious, because I'm not a Christian preacher of any kind. I don't belong to any Christian denomination or church or anything like this. I am just interpreting the words of Jesus as Shivananda would have done or as Yogananda would have done trying to explain them from the standpoint of yoga, of the chakras, of energies, of principles and laws of the universe. With this, let us conclude for tonight. Thank you for joining and having had the patience for it. I kept you a bit longer. Those of you who don't know the rule of the game, you find out maybe now that in satsangs there is no questions and answers. We have questions and answers on Tuesdays and questions from this, they can be brought forth even there if you want. And uh, satsangs is from the teacher to the pupils. It's a one-way communication in which you are being taught something. So this was a satsang evening. That's why I did this discourse. With this, we are done for tonight. See you in the coming activities. And of course, I hope all of you know that tomorrow night we have one thing which happens once a year. It's the Mahashivaratri. And it's a very, very beautiful and very amazing event and the only bump on the road is that you should not forget to register yourself at the door because we have to know you you have to be part of somebody has to vouch for you 
because otherwise we had people who came and took pictures and placed them on the internet without asking for the permission of other people. And those people came and said, I don't want to come to your Mahashivaratri and some idiot take my picture and puts it on the internet without my permission. And that's why we have to keep the Mahashivaratri uh, sort of a Agama event. You can bring people from outside Agama, but somebody needs to know them or vouch for them that it's our own circle of friends who does that. So I'm sure you can fulfill this. I'm sure you can find a way to fulfill this. Our registration people and our karma yogis are ready to support you with this. And uh, if you choose to come to Mahashivaratri, there will be some uh, karma yoga to be done. Lila prefers to tell you a few clear things in case you didn't hear them. And the Mahashivaratri ceremony starts at 10 o'clock. We enter the hall at 10 o'clock. Shiva Hall, appropriately, because it's Mahashivaratri. And uh, the meditations which I do will last approximately until 3.30 in the morning. And all the hardcore people who really want to venerate Shiva to the bone, they usually stay until 6.30, until the sun is rising. It's a, a sort of a full night event for the hardcores. The people who can come just for half an hour, please come just for half an hour. It's not compulsory that if you don't do the whole night, you miss the whole point. Anything will be uh, good for you. Lila, which are the rules of the game? What do you need to tell? 